Um, as we open God's word together, let's pray. Father, you have promised to be our Father, to feed us. Uh, you've commanded us to pray every day for daily bread. Um, we know that your word itself is bread to us and that Jesus' own body is bread to us. So I pray that you would feed us in every way this morning. For we are hungry and we need you. And I pray that you would transform us by the living power of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, Taylor uh, was here and he gave us a great sermon on the main themes of John chapter 6. Jesus is teaching that I am the bread of life. And if you didn't hear Taylor's message last week, I warmly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, what he's done is freed me up this week as we return to John chapter 6 uh, for the third and final time to really just zoom in on a small part of what Jesus says in this great chapter that I think is particularly important for us to know, uh, which is how we should properly understand life and death, the themes of life and death. Um, because our modern understanding of life and death is very confused. It's very muddled, it's very unbiblical, and often that's true even in the church. Um, so at a young age, all of us encountered the reality of death for the first time. It came in as this nasty surprise to our happy existence, and we immediately started asking our parents questions like, where did grandma go? Where is she now? What happened to her? And almost all of our parents, whether or not they were religious at all, almost certainly told us that she was in heaven now. Whatever kind of personal belief they had, when it came to this question, they almost certainly answered their own children with the comforting words that grandma has not ceased to exist, and that she has just gone to a different place, a happy place where all of her problems were over. And without any more than any kind of vague idea of what that word meant, they called that place heaven. That's when we first heard the word. When we die, we go to heaven. And as we grew up, that little word heaven got some images attached to it. Probably something like white fluffy clouds, uh, people playing on harps, angels flying around like fat babies naked, uh, maybe a golden city in the sky. Is any of that true? Do those images reflect what the Bible actually says? And is that what Jesus would have said to a grieving child, that grandma is in heaven? Is that right? That's what I want us to understand today by exploring both the end of John chapter 6, along with the whole Bible's view of life and death. We as Christians have much more clarity and certainty over these questions than any other religion or philosophy in the world. We are told exactly what comes after. We are not left to guess or speculate. It is not left as an unknowable mystery. We know. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that he did not want them to be uninformed on the question of death. And so neither do I want you to be uninformed. Your life is going to have three profound markers. Three profound events that will fundamentally transform the whole nature of your existence. Marker number one, you were born. Marker number two, you will die. And marker number three, you will be raised to life again. So these three markers are separated in time by spaces of existence in between them. And we need to understand both the markers and the spaces properly. So first, you were born. 
You were given life from non-life. Existence out of non-existence. You did not exist at all before you were conceived and born, except in the imagination of God. Jesus did exist. He eternally existed in spiritual form before he was born and took on flesh. So we call his entry into the human world his incarnation. But that is not our story, and it's not our process. We did not pre-exist in any kind of spiritual form before we were born into this present life. We were not incarnated, and we were not reincarnated. We were born. We all have a beginning to our existence, a time in very recent history where we were not, leading to a time now when we are. This is, of course, in direct contradiction to the beliefs of both the Hindus in reincarnation and of Mormons in human incarnation. Those faiths are both wrong. Only Jesus pre-existed his birth. That's why everything the New Testament says about the incarnation of Jesus sets him apart as special and distinct from anyone else who's ever lived. The moment that you began to exist as a human was the moment that God breathed his life into you by his spirit. The Hebrew ruach means spirit, wind or breath. Genesis 2 verse 7 tells us, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruach of life, and the man became a living creature. And that is the process that is repeated for each one of us. We receive life not from our mothers, actually, but directly from God himself. How can I say that? Because of Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5, the preacher says, As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And also because of the words of Jesus here in John 6, verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Which, by which he means not only eternal life, but also it's no help for this physical life either. Your mother actually did not have the capacity in her body to give you life. Life is a divine and not a human miracle. You did not receive your spirit from her spirit, although you did receive your flesh from her flesh. And how your spirit came into your flesh, that moment of its coming is still a total mystery to all of us. No scientist can tell you, no doctor can tell you, no theologian can tell you. Scientists have tried now for over a century to create life in a lab from non-life. It cannot be done. It is utterly beyond all of our wisdom. You are a miracle of God. You, who had never before existed, came to exist. And I hope you would agree that that was a profound change. Now, we move on to the second marker. That is death. And death is not the exact opposite of birth. It's not the equal and opposite process in that it does not decreate us as the atheists say it does. Instead, what death does is separate our spirits from our bodies. This is Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. So the flesh goes down into the ground, and the flesh does gradually cease to exist. It is either burned with fire or it decays into the ground. But either way, it returns to the dust of the earth from whence it came, and its place remembers it no more. But the human spirit 
that began to exist in birth does not cease to exist in death. Instead, it goes somewhere else. Ecclesiastes says it goes to God. And a common name the Old Testament gives to that place where the spirit goes is the Hebrew word Sheol, the place of the dead. Jacob, in Genesis 37, mourned his son Joseph, saying, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Sheol was the general place of the spirits of the dead, both good and bad alike. For some, it was a place of peace. For others, a place of punishment. Both ideas are apparent in 1 Kings chapter 2, where King David, on his deathbed, instructs his son Solomon, who's about to inherit his throne, about Joab, the commander of the army, and David says, do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. David says that where, whatever happens, jo Joab ends up in Sheol either way, good or bad. As time went on, though, the Jewish scholars and sages moved in the direction of thinking that there were actually two distinct places of the dead, one for the spirits of the righteous dead and one for the spirits of the unrighteous dead. And this seems to be the understanding that Jesus agreed with in several places of his teaching, but the clearest is in Luke 16 in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, because Jesus taught the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he was in torment. So Jesus talks about two different places. One he calls Abraham's side, the other he calls Hades. And in the parable, as it goes on, the rich man begs for the chance to warn his brothers to repent, which suggests that those brothers are still alive and they still have the chance to do so. But Jesus in the parable makes the point that after death, no more chance remains. He says between one place and the other, a great chasm has been fixed so that no one can cross in either direction. In other words, time is up at the moment of our death. So then human spirits are held in one of two places waiting for resurrection. Either the good place at Abraham's side, Jesus also elsewhere called it paradise. Or since it is where God lives, an appropriate name is heaven. Or the bad place, which is everywhere in the New Testament called Hades. It's viewed as a kind of spiritual prison. So that's what happens immediately after we die. Our spirits are separated from our bodies and are held in one of those two places, awaiting resurrection and final judgment. But before we get to that third marker, I want to riff on this idea of death for a little bit longer. Because if physical death is the moment that our spirits are separated from our bodies, then death is separation, and it naturally follows that spiritual death is the separation of our spirits from the living God. We need a present, living, vital connection with the God of life to have life. So we're designed like toasters that need to be plugged into the wall to work. We're not self-contained, self-powered units that can exist without God. We do not have life in ourselves. Jesus said back in John chapter 5, 26, he said, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. But then here in chapter 6, verse 53, he says of us, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So in other words, our natural state is to be spiritually dead. 
Why is that? If God made us and brought us alive, why then do we have no life in us? And the answer is because we have become unplugged from the wall. We have become disconnected from the source of God's life. When and how did that happen? It happened when we sinned against God and broke our relationship with him. So we discover that death is not natural. It's not a natural part of life. It is not an essential component of human existence. Instead, it is an invading enemy. And further, we know that the presence of death is our fault. It's our own fault. It's not God's fault. He made us alive, and we chose death, and we still choose it. In the beginning, in the garden, God said of the forbidden tree, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And on the day they ate of it, they did surely die. Spiritually, they immediately became unplugged on that very day and experienced immediate spiritual death, which then manifested later as physical death. God spoke truly. So then, the very first lie that was ever told on earth was by far the most serious. It was when Satan told the man and the woman, you will not surely die. And it's because they listened to him and because they believed him that however many hundreds of thousands of people are going to die today. And Satan's lie, you will not surely die, is still being believed around the world to this very day, isn't it? On many different subjects in different times and places. But in our cultural moment, surely the most common way that we are believing Satan's lie is in the area of our sexuality. Satan is telling us, you will not surely die if you cheat on your wife or have sex with your boyfriend before you're married or if a man sleeps with another man or has surgery to become a woman or dresses as a woman or calls himself a woman. Satan screams, you will not surely die. It's safe, it's natural, God will not condemn it, and anyone who opposes such behavior is a bigot. But Satan is still lying. And we will surely die. And if we approve of these practices in other people, we will surely die. We are called to love all men and women and to treat them with kindness and grace. But what kind of kindness tells them that what they're doing is safe when we know it is not safe. We know that it's fatal. Paul warned the early church that no one who does such things or approves of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, we cannot be forgiven if we have not repented, and we have not repented while we are still practicing or approving what God has called evil. It is fatal, and we will surely die, however many people say otherwise. We have, each one of us, been given the priceless gift of life, and we have, all of us, chosen death. And we will, each one of us, be held to account for that choice and be forced to pay every last penny. Except. Except. For everything that Jesus says in John chapter 6. Uh, and Jesus spoke these words to a large crowd that was very enthusiastic about him at the time. And most of them 
then quit following him when they heard this teaching. They called it a hard word. Who can bear it? This was a sermon of congregation-shrinking proportions. It seems that by the end of the chapter, Jesus was left alone with just the 12, and they didn't really understand him either, but they gave him the great encouragement, Lord, where else are we going to go? But I hope these words won't shrink our congregation today. I hope you don't find these to be hard words, but such good ones. To the problem of our unpayable debt before God, Jesus says, I will pay it with my own body and my own blood. By that, he means forgiveness for us and a fresh start. And we talk about that a lot in this church. But here in this chapter, there's more besides. So if you haven't opened it already, please do finally open now to John chapter 6. It's page 892 of the church Bibles. John chapter 6, because I really want to see this next part together. John 6, page 892. In this chapter, Jesus' promises are for life over and over again. Life, life now and life later. Verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what kind of marvelous rescue is this? The broken body and spilled blood of Jesus is firstly our payment for sin, our hope of forgiveness, but it is also our food of eternal life, our new chance to plug back into God, to connect ourselves up to his life source again, to stop dying and to live. We get to belong to God again, to be with him again, abide in him again. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There's a wonderful, gracious, unmerited gift of life now of reconnection to the source of all life now by sharing in this bread of life. And then we also get the promise, and I will raise him up on the last day. This, then, is the third marker, the marker of resurrection. Everyone who's ever been born, good and bad alike, will be resurrected on the last day. Because Jesus said back in John chapter 5, verse 28, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So everyone gets raised up together on the last day, which means our spirits will be reunited with our bodies, which will be new bodies, yes, but not totally disconnected from our present bodies, just like Jesus in his own resurrection. His new body was whole and bright and strong, almost hard to recognize from before, and yet it bore the scars, the marks of his crucifixion. And Paul explains some of this mystery of resurrection to us in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, the present body dies and it becomes the seed 
of the resurrection body. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So as we all look ahead to our future existence, there are two markers, not one. First, there is death, where our spirit is separated from our body. But then second, there is resurrection, where our spirit is reunited with our new body. Between those two markers, there is a span of time where we are disembodied as conscious spirits living with God, waiting for our resurrection. Theologians have called that span of time the intermediate state. Those who belong to Jesus spend it in a place we might call paradise or heaven, where God is, where we are comforted. Those who have trusted in lies and false gods will spend it in the place the New Testament calls Hades and be tormented. There is no crossover between those two, but neither of those places lasts forever. Because in Revelation 20, verse 13, John saw a future where death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So then what we might think of as hell, the lake of fire, it doesn't exist yet. Jesus called it Gehenna. It's distinct from Hades. It's created at the end of time for Satan and his angels and for the resurrected people who have followed them. But notice in Revelation that Hades itself, that intermediate prison, ends up being destroyed in the lake of fire too, because after that, it's not needed anymore. So for each one of us here today, that is where our lives are going. It's whether we like it or not, you can have no choice about whether you die you have no choice about whether you get resurrected. It's coming. What are you going to do about it? What that means for all of us is that major changes are coming. New states of existence that are going to last forever. How dramatic would you rate the first change of existence of birth between the person you are now and the person you were before you were born? It's extremely dramatic, right? It's incomparable. And two more of those changes are coming for all of us. We should expect them to be no less dramatic. Your life in the intermediate state will be absolutely nothing like your life here and now. And your life after the resurrection will be absolutely nothing like either of them. Changes are coming. Changes are certain. And how could an acorn predict from its present existence as an acorn the nature of its future existence as an oak. It couldn't. What we do know is that if we belong to God now, if we have trusted in Jesus' words and accepted his gift of eternal life, then the future is better than the present. In fact, we know for certain that the future is so much better than the present that the very best day that you have yet had in your whole life so far on earth would be a horror in heaven. 
On the scale of your whole existence, you have not yet had one single good day. Not one good day. Only bad day after bad day after bad day after bad day after bad day. Another day living under the shadow of death. But there will come a time, a moment of transformation, where at that pivot, every single bad day and bad experience of your life will be complete, finished, over, 100% done in the past. And at that moment, the ticker of good days will start counting up from zero upward to infinity. That is how much better we know our future to be. And that is why we hang in there now and thank God for his mercies now. Saints, you are a long way through all of the worst days that are ever going to happen to you. Most of the worst things that will ever happen to you are in your past already. None of the best things are. None. But if you are here today and you have not yet connected with Jesus, if you have not yet received his gift of life and are not abiding in him, then things don't look nearly so good, do they? In light of everything we've seen from God's word today, you can forgive us for having some urgency about this. Because the opposite is equally true. When those markers come and they are fast approaching, what you will face beyond them is immeasurably worse than anything you have experienced so far. For you... All of your best days are already behind you, and all your worst days are yet to come. Unless you choose to flip that script. I don't say it out of unkindness. I believe it with all my heart because my conscience is captive to this word of God, which has nothing hopeful to say to anyone found outside of Jesus Christ at their moment of death. Nothing. It doesn't tell us everything. We do cross our fingers and keep hoping in God's mercy. But we have to say from what God has told us that the most likely outcome is worse than anything we could possibly imagine. And everything in me screams at you, please don't ignore this. Satan lies to you every day and whispers in your ear every day, don't worry, you'll be fine, you will not surely die. But he's a liar, it's not true. You will surely die. Please do not make me do your funeral if you have not repented of your sin. I will have nothing hopeful to say. It will be whistling in the dark. I will try to comfort your family, but I'm not going to have very much I can really say because Jesus has warned us. Please believe Jesus and surrender everything for Jesus. Do Anything he says, he alone has the words of eternal life. The truth is he is good and kind and his yoke is easy. But even if he was a hard master and a tyrant and a slave driver, it would still be worth it. Receiving eternal life from him would still be worth it. Even if it cost you all your freedom, even if it cost you your right to self-identify, even if you had to be crucified, it's worth it. A few short years remain until all of us hit the next marker of death. After that, we have set the course of our eternal existence irrevocably. Get this one right. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, he alone has the words of eternal life. Praise him that he came to rescue us 
when we were doomed to die and to feed us when we were doomed to starve. Our wicked hearts still sometimes think that he is not to be trusted, but it is our hearts that are not to be trusted. They are liars, and he is true. So entrust yourself to the lover of your soul and live. Amen.